Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know we're in a series all through John 18, 19, where we're seeing the last day or so of Jesus' life before he gives up his spirit and goes to the right hand of the Father. Uh, so if you're, if you're new to the Bible, you might have heard, or if you're new to church, you might have heard uh, that Jesus died on the cross to forgive sins. Maybe your Christian friend told you that, or you heard that somewhere, uh, or you saw your, a crucifix, and you're like, okay, I know Jesus died on a Roman cross, but you may, if you don't know much more than that, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us quite a bit about all that happened, and there are a lot of details, and although they are very sad details to watch, as you read, they're very necessary. One, because they're historically accurate, they're actually what happened, but two, particularly in Matthew, although we're in John, you're seeing that what Jesus is going through is fulfilling things that God has told his people for hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years. There are things in Genesis that are being completed as Jesus suffers and is betrayed and, and then offers forgiveness freely to, to all of humanity who would believe. There are things that God's been saying for a very, very long time. And so we're seeing that God is in control. We're seeing that God uh, does what he wants. That's what sovereign means. He gets what he wants. And even in the dark things, he's going to redeem it and have light push back darkness the darkest moments give way to light. So the suffering of Jesus, something that we're learning about through 18 and 19 and how this would call us toward action. Um, sometimes, I should say maybe all the time, if we do not yet know who Jesus is, we're not sure what we think about him, John is gonna continually call us toward faith. He told us that the book was written, John, what he wrote, he wrote this that we might believe Jesus is Messiah and have life in his name. That is John's agenda for us. That is every Christian's agenda for you. Because when you find water in the desert, you tell somebody, or you're a jerk. That's, that's just how that works. Or for those of us who already love Jesus, we, we look at the suffering of Jesus, we see a few things. One, do I really believe that a Messiah who suffered this much, a rabbi who suffers this much, calls disciples around him to follow him, to become like him, and they're never gonna suffer? They're gonna be healthy and wealthy and get a boat and a book deal. That, that's, that would be very illogical if we understand that the rabbi-disciple relationship is not just learning what he knows but becoming who he is. The Christian gets a very different perspective on what is life gonna look like following a suffering savior. Is he a conquering king at the end of the book? Yeah. White horse, big sword, tattoo, blood all over him, and none of it's his blood. You want the macho Jesus? Go to the end of the book. The macho Jesus is when he has been patient for, a, for millennia upon millennia with sinners. The big, strong, scary Jesus at the end is going, look, I died for you, and I waited thousands of years for you to make your decision. I'm judging the world now. Because all of the stuff in the evening news that makes you heartbroken or angry, it makes him angry too. Okay, 
In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and what we're taught about through the rest of the New Testament, we're being introduced to this Messiah who is strong, who is conquering, who's gonna judge the nations, but instead of just coming first with judgment, unbelievably, because God is love, the first time he comes, he comes with mercy. The second coming of Christ shouldn't shock anybody. It's the first coming that's amazing. Justice, you and I understand justice. We hear somebody offends us and we wanna, you know, am I the only one, I know I'm gonna date myself generationally. Anybody here ever played so much Mario Kart with your kid that someone cuts you off in traffic and you instinctively, your right thumb wants to throw a red shell at the person? (laughs) See, all the laughter's over here. I'm just saying there is passive aggressive, there are passive aggressive tendencies in all generations. Uh, if you let your kids play Grand Theft Auto, there are worse things you could desire for that, uh, for that other driver. I'm just saying we understand raw justice, right and wrong. An eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth is the most intuitive possible thing to pour out of the human heart. So when Jesus comes along and says, when you've been slapped on one cheek, offer him the other. He's not just offering a different ethic to the church. He's telling us what he's about to go do on a cross. Was God slapped already? Yeah, he created us and we slapped him. No, we're gonna do it our way. He gave us his law at Sinai and we slapped him. He sent us judges, we slapped him. He sent us some good kings, we slapped him. He sent us prophets and we slapped him. And when everything in your justice-filled heart would think God's surely gonna incinerate us at this point, he comes and says, I'm gonna die for you. So we're staring into the darkest part of the first coming where Jesus suffers instead of us. Today is part six. The title is called When you kill the king, he's still king. We really struggle with this. In 21st century culture, we think that we can change reality by renaming something. No. (laughs) A more extreme version is to kill the person and think, oh, well, I solved that. See, we didn't just want God dead. We wanted him dead. But what we really wanted is for him to not be king. We wanted his throne. That's the actual issue. We wanted his throne. So let's see what he does with that perverse desire that we have. Page 900, John 19, 16. This section starts in the middle of verse 16. Let's read together. So they took Jesus away. Carrying the cross by himself, he went to the place called Place of the Skull in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they nailed him to the cross. Two others were crucified with him, one on either side with Jesus between them. And Pilate posted a sign on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek so that many people could read it. 
Then the leading priests objected and said to Pilate, did you just hear that? He's already been nailed to a Roman cross and they are still not pacified. The Bible's not here to give us a primer on human hate, but it gives it. Change it from the king of the Jews to he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate replied, no, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, rather than tearing it apart, let's throw dice for it. This fulfilled the scripture that says, they divided my garments among themselves and threw dice for my clothing. So that is what they did. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, Here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Lord Jesus, teach us the word today. Holy Spirit, please, as only you can, God, would you help us to feel the weight of what is happening and yet not be so overwhelmed with the darkness that we learn, that we are challenged that you make worshipers out of us. Such a weird paradox, God, that your church is encouraged and empowered by the most horrible, horrible things that ever happened. And yet we ask you to do that today. Give us a sense of awe. Give us a sense of, of gravity, of gratitude. God, I, I ask that you would be Lord over our anger and Lord over our sorrow as we see what you went through and it just naturally feels like something's wrong in the cosmos. God, remind us today that you are Lord even over the dark things. God, strengthen each man, woman, and child because of this text. Strengthen this church family because of this text. Grow our love for you, grow our love for each other, and grow our love for this world. That we would serve in your great name. Amen. Those of you who enjoy taking notes, Jesus died for being king. That's what the text says. Didn't really die just because people didn't, certain people didn't like him. Definitely didn't die because he fell in 
wrong with Pilate. Pilate said over and over, I don't, I don't see any wrong thing that he's done. He died for being king. In a Roman crucifixion, they didn't put up a sign for kicks and giggles at the top of the person's cross. Normal practice was that what was written on the sign was what you had been convicted of. Murderer, murderer, insurrectionist, what have you. So if a zealot was caught, because he was hunting or even successfully killing Roman soldiers, if a zealot is caught, he's crucified and it says insurrectionist across the top. So your identity at the very end is what you did. You want a picture of hell? You want a picture of raw justice? Your identity at the very end is the wrong thing you did. And you're done. There is no redemption. There is no hope going forward. This is it. What did Jesus do to get nailed to a cross? The sign is written at the dictate of Pilate. Pilate, if you were here with us, already said over and over, Jesus hasn't done anything. And Pilate determines what's on that sign. He says, King of the Jews, King over God's people. Pilate doesn't think they're God's people, but that's what the phrase would actually mean if Pilate believed it. It's the same phrase the soldiers were already using when they were mocking and beating Jesus Hail, King of the Jews, crown of thorns purple robe. As I shared last week, it was from a Roman perspective, it was also an insult to the Jews. This bloody mess, this weakling who won't defend himself, this is the best that you guys can do. This is your king. Because they couldn't understand the kingdom of God that Jesus was explaining to them. My kingdom's not of this world. If it was a kingdom of this world, I would have told my disciples to grab a sword, but I didn't. I actually told one of them to put away a sword. They killed your rabbi? Yeah, they crucified him. What for? Well, the charge said, King of the Jews. That was the charge. Guys, this is the most naked, obvious place in this horrible point in human history where we wanted him dead because of his authority. We wanted him dead because he was in charge of us. We wanted a Messiah that would give us what we wanted. Here's the next step I want to call you toward in light of this reality is kingship. So 
Let Jesus die in your place. Now, it's a very weird, perhaps paradox, to say of a sovereign God that you're going to let him do anything. But a sovereign and saving God has sovereignly chosen to give you free will, and he has called you toward faith. Scriptures are obvious. How tragic if somebody was to give you this life-altering gift and Amazon drops it off on your doorstep and you get the text that it's there and you look through the window and you can see that it's there but you never open the door. That would be very tragic. Jesus has already suffered. He has already provided in himself the perfect sacrifice for sin. And he wants that to apply to you. He wants you to to have your sins washed away by his mercy. Receive it. This is how we learn the lesson of killing God for being king of the Jews. He, he's still the king of his people. In fact, laying down his life is what makes him such a great king. Let him be who he is in your life. Let him be who he is. He is a Lord. He's a king. He is a savior. He's creator. Let him wash away your sins so you'll be reconciled to the Father. This is the call of the entire book. This is the call of the church now for 2,000 years. Let me tell you the story in case you don't know of Teruo Nakamura. Teruo was the very, very last Japanese soldier to surrender at the end of World War II. He was arrested by Indonesian authorities in 1974. 74. Where are my history students at? When did World War II end? All right, 45. He had his own little compound hanging out mostly by himself on an island that Japan had successfully invaded in the early 40s and he was still there. And he would not believe anybody when they said the war is over. He believed everybody was an agent that was trying to trick him. So the Japanese government had to find who his direct supervisor was. And he was still living, fortunately, and said, we need to fly you out to this island to relieve him of duty because he won't listen to anybody. Like, so they flew his supervisor out to this island to say, you're hereby relieved of duty. The war is over. Let's go home. He could have had a wife and kids. He could have gone home. Pursued a career, started a business, chased a dream. But he didn't get to have any of that. Died of lung cancer less than five years after this picture. He could have had freedom 
that was offered to everybody and he did not participate in it because everybody and everything was a boogeyman. I'm not gonna believe anybody. Everybody's a boogeyman. Everybody's trying to lie. Everybody's trying to deceive. No way we possibly surrendered. Not us. What is your Christian friend trying to pull over on you, telling you that Jesus wants to forgive your sins? What, what evil thing does your Christian friend have up their sleeve? See, this book says that Jesus has already loved us while we were still sinners. We don't have to earn his love. So you are not some potential spiritual brownie points for your Christian friend. Your Christian friend is already loved by God. You're not a project. It's just that when you find water in the desert, you have to tell somebody or you're a jerk. That's really all it is. It's not a conspiracy. Let Jesus die for you and wash away your sins. Let him do it because he is king of his people. Second blank. Each part of Jesus' suffering was planned by God. Each part of Jesus' suffering was planned by God. Did you hear that section that we read? The soldiers don't want to rip up a perfectly good garment. It's a one piece. So they say, let's gamble for it and the winner take all instead of tearing it four ways equally. That would be a tragic. The sum of the parts is better, right? And what does John say? They did this because they all had a gambling addiction. Is that what John said? John says that four guys far from God did a little gambling because God said so a thousand years earlier. That's why. God's even sovereign over questionable behavior. Throwing dice is the least of your worries when you just crucified Jesus. But God sovereignly chose how Jesus was gonna die, that Jesus was going to die. Every part of this was already talked about in scripture, every part of it. God ordained all of this. And this is critical for our understanding, whether we're a Christian or not. If you're not a Christian, you're gonna look at the cross and you're gonna go, that's divine child abuse because you might not understand yet that the Father, Son, and Spirit are completely equal in their deity. They don't ever ultimately disagree. A triune God decided that Jesus would die for the sins of the world. If you are a Christian, this is critical for you and I to understand and to accept. Because what do we do with suffering and evil in the world if we're not willing to say God's in charge of all of it in an ultimate sense? Even if God doesn't directly cause suffering, he clearly has to allow it if he's sovereign. 
And we're going back into a place of, are we going to trust God with his universe? There's no country song that says, Jesus, I'm taking the wheel now. But we do it all the time. Jesus was never out of control at any point in this historic event. The Father and the Spirit were never, ever out of control, ever. So God is not out of control when you suffer or when I suffer. We flail around. Clearly God couldn't want this to happen. Well, in a broad sense, he didn't. We brought pain and suffering and death and sickness into the world in Genesis 3 when we rebelled against him. He allows us free will, and so he's allowed us to make things awful. And what has he done? He's offering mercy that reconciles us to the Father and gives us a promise of a life where there is no sickness and no death and no sin and no pain, no disunity. That's what he's offered us in the midst of this broken world that we created. We made the brokenness. Here's the next step I want to call you to. When things are dark, remind yourself and others of the sovereignty of God. When things are dark, remind yourself. Anybody here have to, your mind have to preach to your heart during storming emotions? You're not, your mind knows what's true, but your heart is flailing. Remind yourself, and maybe your sibling in the faith who needs reminding, that God is on his throne. He does not forfeit his throne to another. He doesn't even let somebody else borrow it. Not for a second. So I may not like what God is tolerating. I may not like that he is patient with the sinner who is doing something to me or said something toward me, attacked me. I might not like that God is patient, but God is still patient. Everybody wants mercy from God. They just don't want mercy for the person who was their enemy. When you want mercy for your enemy, that means you're starting to really let the gospel grow down deep into your soul. When you're even learning to love your enemy. We're running out of time, so I'll be quick with this. At the end of Casino Royale, this horrible, transformative event for the character of James Bond of why he's going to be very callous and cold toward women and not get too close is that the first woman he loved dies in a collapsing building and they get this brief moment where she's trapped underwater. He cannot save her. And you as the viewer feel the full emotion of how completely awful this is. And only in the next scene do they reveal that everything that happened was planned. And not only was it planned, it was planned by Vesper, the woman who died. A big crime group had their sights on James And she made a deal to steal a bunch of money and give it to them if they would spare his life. 
And in the midst of the chaos, she sacrifices herself. She already had. Before this all went down, she knew she was going to die. James did not know. At the cross of Jesus Christ, he was saving us. And we did not know. We experienced the sadness. We experienced the loss. How are they killing our rabbi? We thought he was Messiah. But your rabbi planned this. He was in control the entire time. Last, Jesus did not allow non-Christians to lead his family. If you're exploring faith, I don't say this, word it this way so that you feel like I'm talking about you like you're not in the room. It's actually quite pragmatic when you think about it. If you believe that the family is a spiritual unit, not just a relational one, you want the leader of the family to worship the same God that you do. Am I making any sense yet? If you're a devout Muslim and you get to choose who the leader of the family is gonna be, you're not gonna choose the Buddhist member of the family. That doesn't make sense, okay? Go to verse 25 with me. Standing near the cross where Jesus' mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said, wait, where's Joseph? Where's Jesus' dad? Is there any possible way that your son gets crucified and you're not gonna be there to get to see him one more time? to say goodbye? Is there any way in a patriarchal culture that you're gonna let your wife go see him and you're not gonna be there? Bigger than that, why does Jesus think he has the authority to say to his disciple John, John, would you take my mom into your household now and take care of her the rest of her life? Why does Jesus think he has that authority? The only way Jesus has that authority is if he is currently the oldest male in the family. So although the text does not tell us, culture does. Joseph has to have died by now. Jesus is the oldest son, and he is spiritually responsible for his mom. And he has lots of siblings. He has tons of half-brothers. And other places in the Gospels already show us the brothers wanted to carry him off to the loony bin, they do not yet believe he is Messiah. Many of them will later, but they don't right now. So as relationally offensive as it would have been, he knows the disciple he's looking at, he believes in me. John, take care of my mom. Brothers and sisters, we need to take spiritual leadership more seriously in our families. Jesus is nailed to a cross and he's looking for a spiritual leader to keep his mom safe from the lies of the enemy. And he knows who he can count on. And he makes the call. I wanna encourage you, 
look for ways to lead spiritually. If a Christian man can consistently lead his family toward Jesus, remind them of the gospel, make sure that they're in a good Bible teaching church, praise the Lord. But what if the guy doesn't love Christ? Guess what, mama? You're the spiritual leader. Some of you guys have been living this for decades. Your children do not love Christ despite your, all of your effort and you are now trying to represent Christ to your grandchildren. If grandma is the only one in the family who loves Jesus, guess what, grandma? You're the spiritual leader. Whoever loves Jesus, <laughs> you are the spiritual leader. We know from other parts in scriptures, Peter was probably the only disciple that was age 20 or older. Right now, Jesus is possibly handing off his mom to a 17-year-old young man. Though the world may think that's crazy, Jesus cares about what really matters. He worships me as God. He gets it. Who is going to point this family toward Jesus? Who is going to open the Bible? Who is going to remind of the blood of Jesus offering forgiveness when one kid punches another? It's not just you did the wrong thing. It's that Jesus died because he knew we would do the wrong thing. And this is where grace comes into play now. Look for ways to lead spiritually. This is Kamis Rita. He holds the world record for climbing Everest 25 times. Um, I'd like credit for 25 sit-ups. I would be very proud of myself at that point. I'm not sure I've ever done 25 sit-ups, but if I did, I would want lots of credit, praise, accolades, and applause. And his last time up before he retired, he was 52 years old. I'm guessing he has no fat on his body. That's my guess. <laughs> when you want to get up phase one of Everest, do you hire as your Sherpa a professional couch potato who's really, really good at playing video games? Do you hire a financial advisor? Even if they're really good, no? Do you hire an attorney? Do you hire a doctor? Again, if you don't love Jesus yet, I am not trying to offend you with pointing out what Jesus did. When I want somebody to lead my family toward faith in Jesus, I cannot hire somebody who hasn't been up the mountain. It just doesn't make sense. None of us would trust somebody who hasn't been there. Have you fallen on your face at the cross of Christ and wept tears? Not just of your guilt, but of gratitude for the mercy of God? You've done that? Awesome. Then you could maybe lead my children so that they could do that. Guys, I'm young, okay? This is a totally different ballgame for me. I'm thinking when I bought, mm, a few years ago now, bought a new life insurance policy, when I'm thinking of what for some people, would be tragic. If, if I died young, frankly, I'm not worried about my wife. She's smoking hot. And she is smart enough to go find herself a good guy. When I think of dying young, I think of who's gonna lead my babies toward Jesus. 
That's what I think of. If I was dying and for some weird reason I got to pick the guy who was gonna marry my wife and raise my kids, what would I care most about? Have you face planted at the foot of the cross and, and, and wet the grass with your tears at his beautiful mercy? Okay, maybe you're the guy. You've been up the mountain, I'll hire, I'll hire you. Not the couch potato. Lord Jesus, would you please teach us? Lord Jesus, would you show us your pastoral heart toward your mom? your pastoral heart toward us as you offer forgiveness of sins freely? God, would you show us your strength and your sovereignty even over the darkest places in human history? God, would you please grow our faith? Help us to believe in our bones if we are Christians that you are wise and you are strong and you know what you're doing in the mess. God, for those of us that are exploring faith, would you please Help us to see you for who you are and to respond accordingly. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. God's people said, amen. amen. Now we're gonna watch an announcement video together. Good morning, ARCF family. The time leading up to Easter is an excellent opportunity for reflection and appreciation, and it's also known as Holy Week. In your bulletins this week, we have provided you with a guide to Holy Week that includes a passage and a description of what is being observed each day. And you'll find that it's in English and Espanol. Now there are two services that I wanna encourage you to join us for during Holy Week. The first is Good Friday. Our Good Friday service is gonna be held on Friday, April 15th at 6 p.m right here in the worship center. On this evening, we're gonna be observing the day that our savior, Jesus Christ, died on a cross to save all of humanity. So we invite you to come join us for a night of singing and reflection. And the second thing that I wanna highlight is really the best day of them all, Easter morning, or as we like to call it, Resurrection Day, because it's the day that we get to celebrate Jesus conquering the grave. Oops, did I give away the ending? Spoiler alert! Now our Easter Sunday services begin bright and early at 7 a.m. under the oak tree for our sunrise service. And as a side note, this may be the last time that we have sunrise service underneath the oak tree before the land is sold. Then at 9 a.m., we are welcoming everybody to come join us right here in the worship center for our Easter morning service. Oh, and I have even more exciting news about our Good Friday and Easter morning services. We're gonna be joined by our Spanish-speaking brothers and sisters. So both the singing and the message will be translated in English and Spanish. So we hope that you will come join us. Now I have one more thing to highlight for you on Resurrection Day, and that's our time after the service. We invite you to come join us for refreshments in the courtyard right after the service, and at 10.45 a.m., the kids are gonna go hunting for Easter eggs. Is there an age limit on the Easter egg hunt? Look, I'm young at heart. Now all those items that I mentioned are in your bulletin as well as the guide. And Holy Week is an excellent opportunity for you to invite your friends and family members who don't know Jesus. So again, we hope that you'll join us for those gatherings. All right, church family, that's all I've got for you. As always, please make sure you grab yourself a bulletin, read it left to right, front to back for more events and more information. Brothers and sisters, you got six and a half days. Go look for a life or two that need you to lead them toward Jesus. 
Look for places to lead spiritually. They are all around you. I love you. Have a great week.